Sunday, January 24th, and this is the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander with me, I got Sam Bassini with me, and it was a a wild weekend of college basketball. You guys get through it okay? You get through this wild weekend of college basketball okay? I'm doing all right. I mean, it was uh, was an enjoyable weekend, and you know, part of the wildness was it wasn't a complete devastation of ranked teams, you know, a little bit of a reversion to expectations relatively speaking to what we've seen in the past two weeks or so. Yeah, um, I guess the only top five team to lose this weekend, or maybe there were well, Maryland, right? And then mm-hmm. and then where was mm-hmm. where was SMU ranked? Because the, the headlines Eighth, of the weekend. Okay, so the headlines yeah. of the weekend, let's just run through them real quick, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pop into them however we feel like. Uh, Providence won at Villanova. Um, that was obviously a huge game in the overtime. SMU took its first loss. At Temple, Iowa moved to 7-0 in the Big Ten uh, with a sweep of Purdue and a sweep of Michigan State. Uh, Indiana moved to 7-0 in the Big Ten. Their resume isn't nearly as impressive as Iowa's. They haven't played the same caliber of teams yet, but still, um, you know, they were they were sitting there in a, in a pretty rough spot once upon a time, and now they're 7-0 in the Big Ten. Michigan State uh, snapped its three-game losing streak. They beat Maryland uh, Saturday night at the Breslin Center. I'll start with you, Sam. What was the biggest development of the weekend? What's the biggest headline of the weekend? If we could only talk about one thing from college basketball from Saturday or Sunday, which of these things would it be? Uh, it's probably SMU, right? I mean, there's no longer an undefeated team in college basketball. They ran into a, a juggernaut of shooting uh, with Temple on Sunday. Uh, and th- that's kind of a problem that, S- that SMU has had all season long. They've given up a lot of threes uh, throughout the season. I think they're 328th in the country in uh, the percentage of shots that teams take against them that are threes. And uh, if you know anything about three-point defense, the best way to actually guard against three-pointers is just not allow teams to take them. That's how teams like Brown dropped 15 threes on them. Temple dropped 14 today. I think Michigan dropped 10 on them earlier this year. And that's how you lose games, pure and simple. I mean, if a team gets hot from three, uh, you can have the best team in the world and you can still end up losing games. And, uh, you know... This was a great run for SMU. It was going to come to an end eventually just because at this point, I think they only have seven scholarship players and uh, that's obviously incredibly difficult to deal with. Just, uh, I think they're practicing four on four right now is uh, something I heard. So it's a great accomplishment for them to go 18 and 0. They're still clearly the favorite in the American athletic conference. And uh, hopefully they can, you know, finish up something like, you know, 26 and two, I think they have 28 games this year. So 26 and two, something like that. And, you know, that'd be a really great story. I will say um, it'll be interesting to see how you motivate these guys now, because obviously when you have no postseason opportunities, um, there can be like a, a little bit of what are we even playing for uh, mindset that, that slips in, but then you get, you know, to 18 and Oh, and, in a weird way, and we've talked about this before, you go from having nothing to play for to having something really significant to play for. Like you're playing for history. Like, man, like we're halfway, more than halfway to, um, to, to an undefeated season. And no, it would, I think it would have actually been 30, you know, I think they've got 30 games. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, it wouldn't have been an undefeated team season like 76 Indiana because it wouldn't have resulted in a national title. But still, we would have remembered that team forever. Like I talked about this on a a radio show, not mine, but somebody else's on Friday. Um, You know, like I think you guys can probably do this, but the casual sports fan couldn't. Like, okay, uh, national champion 1991, national champion 1996, national champion 2001. Okay. Uh, 2007. Florida. 2011. Doesn't UConn? You're really good at this, right? Sam could. You, I could not do that. I couldn't do that either, right? My point is, they kind of blur together, except for the really uh, special ones, like you know the back-to-back Floridas, 0509 Carolina, 2012 Kentucky, 2008 Kansas. But you can get into some of these years where it's like whatever. Uh, I mean, you know, we give away a trophy every year, but like you would remember 30 and 0 SMU forever, right? That's a fair point. I think I that's see, totally fair. Go ahead, Sam. I will say this, I don't know for a fact that we would. I mean, the first year that Urban Meyer took over at Ohio State, they go undefeated. They're not eligible for the uh, yeah. championship game, obviously. And I feel like that team's been kind of forgotten 
over the course of the last. But few I would. Years. Okay, I mean, so here's my it's more difficult in college college right. basketball for right. sure. Well, I mean, yeah. well, one one because the short seasons are shorter. Two because Meyer's own program has overshadowed that accomplishment with what That's they've done in winning a national championship since with SMU. You've got obviously legendary coach. I understand Myers also that, but SMU has no basketball history whatsoever. And the fact that you've got the NCAA tie to Larry Brown and going 30 and 0, it would also mark uh, the third straight season, which we would have had a team run the table in the regular season in college basketball, Kentucky last year, which I'll state the year before. I think we would have remembered that team for for a long time. Now. yeah. You know, it is what it is. I do too, and here's why: because we get undefeated seasons in football, all at college football, all the time. Like it's it's not only Urban Meyer's Ohio mm-hmm. State team; it's Urban Meyer's Utah team. It's um, it's sure. uh, it's it's Tulane once upon a time with Sean King at quarterback. We always remember. I remember that one. It's um, you know, it's it's Jameis Winston at Florida State. Whereas we don't get undefeated. See, you know, a team that finishes undefeated. I know technically it would just be an undefeated regular season, but it would be a team that never lost its entire year. Where Wichita right. State, uh, you know, ultimately took a loss. Uh, Kentucky ultimately took a loss. This team would have finished thirty and zero if it, you know, could finish thirty and zero. And so mm-hmm. I think it would have been remembered in 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 a weird way, but but in a in a real way forever. And now that's off the board. And like, what can you get the kids to keep? Can you now, uh, you know, redefine the goal? Can Larry look at those kids and uh, and say, okay, now we're playing for the American Athletic Conference championship. That's the new goal. Like, does that? You know, does that get you going? I don't know, but that it, it'll be interesting to see how they respond uh, to this because I, I think we all thought that they'd probably take a loss somewhere along the way, but we didn't necessarily think it'd be at, at Temple uh, on a Sunday afternoon. You said something, Sam, that I found interesting, and um, I'm about to ask a question. I don't even I don't know the answer to it, but it's something I noticed recently, and um, and it, it it's been in my head. You mentioned that you know SMU gave up a bunch of three pointers, and is there is there any data? I mean, I'm sure it's available. I just haven't looked it up. Are teams making more three pointers now? Are they shooting more three pointers now? Making more three pointers now? They are shooting more because it's uh, se- they're definitely shooting more. It seems like I, I okay because he, it seems here's why I, I say that I you know I'm I'm constantly looking at box scores right I'm just I, I stare at box scores stare at box scores stare, because like when we're in studio for television I, I don't know if you know this I don't want to give away secrets um, but we're doing highlights on like 20 games. And we don't get to watch 20 games. It's not possible. So you end up having to pick out little uh, bullet points. And, it, and it, it comes off sounding like you were watching the game. But like really you would just grab the box score maybe 14 seconds before you started doing the highlight. And so I'm constantly looking at three-pointers made, three-pointers attempted. And it used to be a big deal like if somebody made 10 three-pointers. Like they made 10 three-pointers. And now it feels like every night every team's making – every team that wins makes 10 three-pointers. I know that's not true. But I have noticed or I feel like I've noticed um, teams making – obviously taking more and but also making more three-pointers than I can remember in college basketball. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely taking more and making more. Uh, I mean, I I think that's kind of an analytical revolution over the last few years. I mean, more than anything, uh, you look at the teams that Fred Hoiberg had at Iowa state, they used to take just about zero mid-range shots. And I mean, the mid-range shot in especially college basketball where the three-point line is so short. I mean, the mid-range shot is, it's not useless. Don't get me wrong, but like it, it, it has considerably less expected value than a three point shot or a layup. Um, and I think that teams are getting smarter about their shot distribution on the floor. Like look at Providence this season. I mean, everyone on Providence can shoot threes. Everyone, uh, on Providence can get to the hole and make shots. And, uh, they shoot what I feel like from just watching them. And I don't know what their shot distribution looks like off the top of my head, as far as like looking at a shot chart, but I would guess that they're pretty close to just taking layups and threes, uh, or at least as close as you can get to that. So I think that that's an example of, you know, the way teams are going forward, uh, thinking analytically just about what the most efficient shots are on the floor. You know, um, I wonder why more schools like or like even the big time programs haven't really just uh, completely committed to it. Like a, a school like Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, obviously they're all doing OK. So like, you know, they don't need my advice. But I think it'd be interesting in college basketball to see a program that can go out and like, you know, handpick players. You know, that like, you know, most schools can't, you know, they have to go recruit guys and beat it. You know, the, the Kansas's, Kentucky's, the Carolinas, like they can get high level guys consistently. I wonder what would happen if you, in, a, in say a five man class at like Kansas, Kentucky, 
you know, uh, Carolina Duke. You took, you know, the, the you know three all around best talents like you normally would. You know, they're like amazing athletes. You know, future you know lottery picks. You know, McDonald's All Americans. And then you just said, you know what? And and beyond that, I'm going to sign two or even just one just the best shooter in the country. I don't care if he projects as a pro. I don't care if um, he's a great athlete. I just want to have a couple of just knockdown shooters on my court with these other amazing prospects. And I, I wonder if you can start to play a style that would be uh, um, uh, uh, more similar to the way a lot of NBA teams are playing now. Does that make sense or am I just being silly here? Well, you're kind of speaking with the way that my man Rick Bird has coached for a long time. Um, and no, that's 100% no, right. No yeah. coincidence that McKillop, McKillop's offense isn't exactly what I think we're getting at here, but certainly uh, the schemes that he runs, and he's never been shy from the three-pointer, and obviously there's the Steph Curry connection right there. Um, I think Beeline does that quite a bit. Yeah. I, I think, okay, so I'm not opposed to this philosophy being adopted in college basketball because I think there is value to that. Um, but I, I also think a lot of people don't like this at all. And I think it's some of what Mark Jackson was criticizing. Mark Jackson said something like three weeks back that I think people, uh, took the quote on face value and didn't took, take it within context. And he was kind of, people thought that he was hating on Curry and the Warriors. And obviously there's the subtext of him coaching the team back sure. when, uh, <laughs> but really what he was saying was, it's not all good to have college or pro basketball turn into this situation where you have teams jacking up 43 pointers a game because within that the sport loses a certain element of dynamics to the style of play. And I think there is something to that. Personally, I like freewheeling offenses. I love the three point line. Um, I would think that the college basketball three point line could even afford to come back even just a little bit more. And I think that will happen at some point over the next decade. Um, but I think what GP's talking about here also is a little bit easier said than done um, because there's just no guarantee that one, you're going to win those battles on the recruiting trail, and then two, they're going to totally fit in. It can happen, and don't get me wrong, like what Oklahoma is doing right now sure. is certainly working out to a, a large extent. But um, but I wonder how much we're going to go to that more and more in, in, at the college level. I think you will see it more. But I don't think it's going to take over the sport the way maybe it it, it really is starting to, and the and the Warriors have started a revelation in the NBA. Yeah, um, I mean, like Oklahoma though, like I think the best. I don't know if they're the best team in the country. They, I think they've got the best resume in the country. They're ranked number one at Ken Palm right now. They shoot forty six point four percent from three point range. Like they're they're um they're they're leading the country. In, in they're three- awesome, and yeah, and like some of this stuff. Uh, like it's it's ridiculous like buddy healed what is he at right now he i'm bringing it up right i mean it's just stupid he's like, he's like 50 percent right? from yeah. three point range yeah like it's it's outright like honestly i think he's 50 50 90 or right around there right it's crazy yeah. right it's like, like 50 50 87 i think yeah. and i love it don't get me wrong but like when you've got a, a buddy healed Okay, so I did this about three weeks ago. I'd have to look it up again. There was only one other guy, and I know it, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. The point I'm making is only one other person had shot more three-pointers than Buddy Heald or within the same amount of three-pointers, and at the time it was more than 100, and now we're at Buddy Heald's taking 143 and made more than 48% of his shots. It's just insane. Like It's one thing to be a 50% three-point shooter, and you've taken 60 all season, and you're really just a spot-up guy like what Max Hooper does at Oakland. But Buddy Heald's taken 143 and made 74. That's insane, and, and I love it. It's, it's great. Um, but to replicate that is obviously so much so much easier said than done. I, I, well, here's, here's the thing about that, though. Like The idea of like the analytical revolution, though, is that you don't really have to shoot 50% from three for the three pointer to no, be an efficient that's, shot. That's the thing. You oh, just I have know. To, yeah. You just have to take a bunch. Like, right. yeah. like, like there really is. Um, 40% from three is better than 50% from two. No, but like, you know, like last year, if you looked at, I think the Eastern conference finals and the Western conference finals, the four teams that were alive were like top seven in the league in three pointers attempted. Not not just that, make them whatever, but like they they were taking a bunch and it creates spacing and like it's you know um, because I I where I live I you know watch the Grizzlies every night and they ha- they can't shoot the ball but it's not only that they can't make threes it's that they don't even take them and it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a problem to not t- you have to at least take them and I, I think it's actually harder to construct in the NBA 
because like you're sort of reliant on the draft and you're reliant on free agency. And if you're a small market, you might not be able to, or you don't have like Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich or, or LeBron, like it might be hard to learn free agents. Whereas, you know, in this hypothetical I'm, I'm talking about, um, your Kansas and your Kentucky and your North Carolina, like you can go grab, like, let's say there's a kid ranked 55th in the country. Um, and you could get three guys that are ranked higher, but this, this kid might be a 45% three point shooter in college. Just go take him and put him on the court with the rest of your dudes. And, and like, I don't know. I just, I look at some of these programs that can handpick recruits and I, and I wonder like you have 13 scholarships and you have no shooters. Like, how does this happen? Yeah. Like John Calipari ends up in that spot all the time. He's got he's got thirteen scholarship players, uh, seven pros, and one shooter, and sometimes no no shooters. Like I, um, I, I that's always sort of baffled me. Like why these programs that can like Kentucky right now shooting thirty two percent from three, ranked two hundred seventieth in the country. Like why these programs that can sign basically anybody they want end up with rosters with no shooters in this era of, of basketball. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, if you look at another like traditional blue blood, Indiana, right. uh, Indiana, I think is. I just looked it up. It's right around a hundred and you know, one shots of theirs have been from the mid range out of like a thousand one hundred and seventy-three. And that you know, that's like ten percent of their shots, nine percent of their shots. I mean, they're all coming from three and they're all coming from within like seven feet of the basket. Right. Like th- that's that's the way that really you should play basketball if you're getting efficient offense and uh really doing the right things and getting the right motions offensively. Um yeah, it, it just makes so much more sense to play like that. And I, I think that uh, also a team that I wrote about this weekend in Vanderbilt is a team that uh, is not doing that right mm-hmm. now and is incredibly frustrating to me because they run all of these damn post ups <laughs> for, you know, Damian Jones and for Luke Cornett instead of running like a wide open freewheeling offense with, you know, high screen and roll with Wade Baldwin and uh, like surround with shooters and actually run some off ball motion. But Vanderbilt doesn't do that, and that's incredibly frustrating to me. All right, Matt. If we take uh, SMU's loss at Temple off the table, next biggest headline from the weekend, in your opinion, is? To me, it's the Providence win at Villanova because Villanova had won 22 straight Big East games and won 32 straight home games. Providence has not lost a road game yet this season. Now it's got a couple of clunker home uh, outcomes that it wasn't able to close out in Providence, but has uh, not lost away from home uh, on the road, and is four and one against ranked teams. You know, when, when PC kind of stumbled over the past two weeks, you know, we, we discussed how they had certain preseason expectations and for them to have lost a couple similar to Michigan state wasn't the end of the world. And maybe they're just coming back down to earth, you know, the Marquette loss and the Seton hall loss, but then they were able to beat Butler earlier in the week. And now they've taken out Villanova on the road to me, this is going to end up being one of the the handful of really, really important uh, road victories in college basketball by the time we get to Selection Sunday, just because I think Villanova will win that league still. They still are technically ahead sure. overall in the Big East, and I still think that they will win the league. And so I don't think you'll have too many instances where a regular season conference champion from one of the you know the power six, so to speak, uh, drops drops a home game, you know, and if it does, will it come against a team of Providence's caliber? How many of those will happen? So I think it's going to benefit uh, PC in the end to help them get a really nice seed. And in that game, I mean, listen, Sam was on the money to do a, a piece on on Ben Bentel a couple weeks back on CBSSports.com. Love Ben Bentel. Yeah, man. Listen, he thirty-one and thirteen. Uh, he is he is terrific. Uh, Dunn actually, it, it's so funny. Dunn, if you watch the game, Dunn had, uh, he was okay. And then you look like he had, you know, 14 assists, uh, four steals. Um, he did foul out. Uh, but even like he, he made a couple of plays late uh, to me when I watched Dunn play and it's how like, I know he's just NBA ready right now. First of all, whenever he has the ball in his hands and he's commanding it, like it's, I can't keep my eyes off him. I just, I find when to watch Chris Dunn play, it's just, it's magnetic. I love it. But, um, there is certainly uh, – he puts teams on their heels a lot with his ability to penetrate. I still don't like how much he settles sometimes for a, for a step-back jumper. I think he's got to maybe fix a little bit of that in his game. Uh, but the point I'm making is it's not just him. Bentel is becoming, in a way, he's almost hurting Dunn's player of the year campaign. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would still have Dunn as a top-five guy. 
But Bentel would have to be in like a top 20 right now. I think you'd have to put him there just because of how well he's played. There's no doubt about it. He's the most improved player in the country. And we've got a situation where Providence is 17-3, and it will be in the NCAA tournament. It would take an absolute collapse that I can't possibly see happening. And I'll be at Providence on Tuesday night. They get a very interesting home test against Xavier. That's just a really, really awesome Big East game. I don't know if necessarily the winner or the loser gains or loses too much overall because their resumes are so strong, but it's going to be awesome to see those two teams go head-to-head. And if Providence does win, they'll have achieved something that's pretty remarkable, and maybe only Villanova will be able to match in that they'll have beaten the other three best teams in the league and i think we can still call butler number four i know they're kind of they're kind of wavering but i would still call butler four so they would have beaten butler then nova then xavier if they can pull it off you know, providence right now is 37th at ken palm that that's the biggest discrepancy between yes. between me and my top 25 and one and like ken palm and they were it, by the way sorry to cut you off yeah. gp i checked before uh-huh. the game they were 50th right so they got a 13 point jump by beating villanova so they were way way lower even before that i when i update the top 25 and one in the morning i will have them eighth they've got a top 10 resume i mean at least the way i look at resumes they've got five mm-hmm. they've got five top 50 kinpom wins they got a win over villanova they got two over butler they've got a win over arizona and they've got a win over creighton um and that's a road win they've got the one stupid home loss to marquette by a point uh I, but like when you start stacking re- you know resumes next to each other and look, like, Providence has got a top 10 resume right now. Like, that's a that, um, that's a good basketball team with a lot of quality wins. And, um, you know, they, they, now they get Xavier at home, um, and, you know, in a game that I, I would assume they'll be favored in. I mean, it's pro- close to a pick point, but, like, um, the job Ed's doing with this team. Like, you know, like, Ben Bentham is, is, a, is awesome, but, like, you know, he, he, ain't, he ain't supposed to be. You know, like, like this wasn't supposed to be the way it is. And it seems like Ed's been able to, over time, um, at Providence, he's always got one of these guys that just kind of, you know, wasn't a heralded recruit. And then, and, and then he's just like, whoa, this, here's another dude scoring 17 points per game. Like, it seems like he's always got one of these on his team, you know? Yeah. Bryce Cotton, LaDonte Hatton. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, you know, uh, I, I can't say enough about the job, um, uh, he's done there. Um, with Villanova, it's, it's kind of funny. We talked on Friday uh, about a lot of stuff, but two of the main things we talked about is Villanova's amazing 22-game Big East winning streak and the um, uh, incredible job Sean Miller's doing at Arizona. And then I and then I spend part of my Friday column on both of those things. And then <laughs> yeah. and then Arizona goes out and loses to Cal, and uh, Villanova goes out and loses to uh, the, the, to Providence. The Cal thing. I mean, we can kind of transition here because I think two other ones we should talk about. One. We can spend a quick. We don't have to spend too much time with it. Cal absolutely had to have that because to me, Cal, um, I haven't fielded, but if you, I would say Cal is a borderline tournament team with the win. Now they really needed that. They are one and six away from home, and so now they've got a couple of road games upcoming: Utah and Colorado. So Cal, to me, has still got plenty of work to do, uh, but good on them for getting it. And then obviously, Michigan State beating Maryland. Uh, that was, you know, that was the big primetime game. Those were actually, it was Michigan State, Maryland, and then Cal, Arizona on Saturday night were the two only real, uh, truly relevant games in the sport. And obviously that was just, you know, it died. Michigan State hasn't had a four-game losing streak since 2007. Matt Costello, that was just an awesome scene. Yeah, like, no, right? Like, he was like, the, him, awesome him, was him picking up Izzo and like, I I mean, yeah, no, that was, that was, Listen, I'm not the guy that tries to tell you college basketball is the greatest sport in the world. Like I, you know, I, I think the NFL's better. I think college football's probably better. I think the NBA's probably better. Um, but like you don't get that. You know, any like that, you're not getting that in college football. Uh, I mean in uh in the NBA. Like that scene, that moment. That was a that was a yeah, that was a great college basketball moment. I would laugh really hard if Ashawn Robinson would have picked up and spun Nick Saban <laughs> though in the championship game. Uh, that would have been actually pretty incredible. <laughs> Saban would have cut him two minutes later. Uh, <laughs> but no, listen, Michigan State needed that. Um, and, and it's one of those things where, like, I don't know, Maryland isn't going to be hurt too much by the loss, I don't I don't think, overall. Um, but you just got to get off the schneid there. And so, and that was that was huge for MSU. I, I, I think that the Spartans are still going to be a team that can contend for a pretty good seed down the road. But, but the Big Ten's super interesting, man. I mean – do you guys want to address like I don't think we spent much time on this on the podcast and if we have I'm just blanking on it um and I know Sam's ready to talk about it but 
uh, Indiana is the only other undefeated team right there with Iowa. I mean, yeah, those two teams, uh, like no, um, okay, yeah. So Iowa and Indiana are both seven and zero, uh, and in the league now, I, those are very different seven and zeros. Yeah, very way. sure. Very different seven and zeros. I mean, it, it looks the same in the standings. Very different seven and zeros. Iowa seven and zero features two wins over Michigan State, two wins over Purdue, and a win over Michigan. Okay, so that's five wins right there. I believe what I'm about to say is true. I'll double check myself. Because uh, Indiana's 7-0 is a win over Rutgers, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Ohio State, Minnesota, Illinois, Northwestern. Okay, here's, here's the point. Basically the bottom half of the league. Here's the point Absolutely. I was going to make. Uh, Iowa's 7-0 and Indiana's 7-0. Iowa has five wins in their 7-0, in its 7-0, better than any of Indiana's wins in its 7-0. They've got yeah. two Michigan States, two Purdue's, and a Michigan. Those five wins are better than any Big Ten win that I, Indiana has. So um, I will. So it seems clear, and this isn't a knock because, as I've uh, written before, when you're five and three and coming off a twenty-point loss to Duke after losing to Wake Forest and to a Mountain West school that subsequently fired its coach midseason, however you get to seventeen and three from five and three is amazing, but. Like they, it ain't like they've gone out and knocked out Maryland and knocked out Michigan State and knocked out Purdue and knocked out Iowa yet. Their their schedule's coming. Um, you know, again, I'd celebrate it if I were Tom, and he's and he undeniably has them playing better, regardless of the uh, victims on the schedule. But that 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 seven and zero is not the it's not the same as Iowa seven and zero. If that makes sense. No, it's not remotely close, actually. Right. But like you said. Uh, Indiana is clearly playing better, especially on the defensive end. Yeah. I mean, they are the number one team in the Big Ten right now uh, by defensive efficiency, and that's by over three points per 100 possessions uh, over Maryland. So and then they're seven points better than Iowa in third place like this. Indiana team compared to where they were early in the season defensively, whenever they gave up like a point and a half per possession against Duke right. in that game uh, at Cameron indoor, like this is, it's night and day uh, where Indiana is. And part of that, I, I mean, and this is somewhat unfair uh, to James Blackman, but part of that is, you know, getting a little bit of an infusion of length and athleticism at the two guard spot with uh, OG Ananobi, uh, Jawan Morgan, like like they have wings that they can play now that are just unde undeniably more athletic and better defenders than Blackman is. Um, Iowa fans hate you though now. Why well, is, that, that, well that, is it? Is it because I've had a couple of people ask me this question, and I, I, I mean, listen, I, I know what the the numbers say. It's still a weird thing to to you know to suggest, but like, are they better without James Blackman? Did they, they, they may, they may, they've lost maybe an NBA player and gotten better. Like, is that, is that what's happened? I mean, are they, I mean, I know they're, they've been winning more without James Black. Are they actually better without him? I, I will say that there's a very thin like line there between going from like causation to correlation. You know what right. I mean? Like, uh, you know, maybe that lineup, they have enough offense in the lineup as it is. And, uh, getting that defense from Juwan Morgan in uh, in Anobi is just better, but it's it's hard for me to say that a team is better without James Blackman in college basketball. You know what I mean? It's it's a very thin line, I think, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm not gonna pretend to know because I'm not around that team daily. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't really you know, pretend to say that I know what the players are thinking, what their thought processes are out on the floor. Uh, it's, it's just a very difficult line to kind of thread. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And I would say this, like, I don't really know what Tom said in the press conferences when asked about it, but when I've talked to him, um, he's not, and I'm, I'm saying like, I, you know, I'm just being honest. He's not even like privately off the record saying, Man, we got a lot better when James Blackman left. Like he, like he does not think they're better without James Blackman. In fact, last time I talked to him, he was like, you know, losing James really hurts us. It it, it messes up our spacing, and um, you know, he he's he he does not see. He's very happy with how the team's playing and 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 winning. But he he does. I, I can just tell you again, like on the record, off the record, he doesn't view losing James Blackman as a positive for his basketball team. Right. Now, you know, I don't think any coach really would, although having said that, I did talk to a coach earlier this year who lost his best player from last year <laughs> and, and said that uh, there was a little bit of addition by subtraction. I've heard that from uh, coaches. Yeah. Yeah. But typically, whenever you lose a guy like James Blackman, it, it's you're not going to have the coach come out and say, 
yeah, like we're, we're better without this guy because we get the infusion of athleticism. But to a certain extent, maybe having him around to be off the bench and, you know, provide some like microwave scoring would be terrific. But, you know, m- maybe the minute distribution clears up a little bit better with black men on the sideline. It, it's just like I said, it's such a hard needle to kind of thread. And uh, I mean, not being around the team, it's impossible to really say. Um you know, with with uh, the, we go back to the Big Ten with Iowa. Uh, you know, the, that's why their rankings very different than than Indiana's right now. I mean, Iowa yeah. uh, Iowa's sixteen and three, Indiana seventeen and three. But I I will have tomorrow morning Iowa ranked third in the country, and I'll have Indiana ranked nineteenth in the country, um, and I'll also have Texas A and M in the top five. In other words, my top, two of my top five teams will be Iowa and Texas A and M. Could you have ever imagined that? And it's not like I'm. It's not like I'm out there. Like that's probably. I like. I think that's where they belong by definition. I'm the one that does the rankings. Like you look yeah. at resumes. Like Iowa and Texas A&M are legitimate top five teams right now. Crazy and man, A&M. Yeah, seventeen and two. A&M. Okay, we spent some time on him on the previous podcast when I made Mark Turgeon disappear. And <laughs> listen, there's seven and zero in the SEC. There's nothing. You, you can't uh, you can't really say anything bad about what this team has done because the losses neutral against Syracuse who isn't at, terrible at, Arizona, at State. Arizona State not awful I think you could probably get a little bit of an argument but undeniably A&M a top five team Iowa at three is for sure I still think um, it's going to take some people a while to come around on fully being in on Iowa I would say listen it's a legit team and people need to start looking at Iowa as a team that if it's if it basically keeps up the way it's been playing, and that's even with a loss or two, like Iowa's going to be a, a number one seed. Like yeah. it's going to have to really lose some games that it shouldn't lose, and maybe that happens. I mean, you I know, mean, maybe of course, but like you know maybe, what, like, like so far, so far it hasn't really happened. I mean, right. okay, like they've got three losses, but none outside the top fifty at Ken Palm. The worst loss on paper is an eighty-two seventy-seven loss to Dayton. Dayton's good. Mm-hmm. All right, no other neutral court loss. 68-62 to Notre Dame. So, uh, so no, and and the other loss is at Iowa State in a game, frankly, that they blew. You know, like they had that game. Like no, a whole bunch should have won that game. Should have won the game. Like a whole bunch of stupid stuff had to happen for them not to win that game. So nobody's run them off the court. They haven't lost a home or neutral site game since November twenty seventh. So we're talking uh, like basically in two months. And the only loss since November twenty seventh is a loss at Hilton where they should have won. And meantime, it ain't like they're just like, you know, beating up on a bunch of nobodies. Like they've got two wins over Michigan State, home and away. Two wins over Purdue, home and away. They've got a double digit win over Michigan at home. And that's a Michigan team that beat Maryland. So um like did that like you know, I maybe they don't blow you away in terms of individual talent. Maybe they don't blow you away in terms of um you're not used to seeing uh Fran McCaffrey everywhere. But like this, this it's a very good college basketball team, and the resume is the resume. Like I, you know, I, not everybody agrees with, um, you know, ranking teams is subjective. Obviously, I tend to look at resumes, wake up every day, and look at bodies of work, and like that body of work is re like it's a top, it's a top three body of work. So why do the Iowa fans hate Sam? Do they hate you, Sam? I don't know what happened. Is it? Um, be- well, no, it's because I said that Tom Crean should be coach of the year in the Big Ten, because Tom Crean has improved his team more throughout the course of the season than I think Fran McCaffrey has. Well, here's what I would say. Um, Fran had an unranked team in the preseason and now he's got, yeah, but that doesn't really bother me necessarily. Like like the idea of rankings in the preseason, uh, it's clear that Indiana was a little bit overrated in the preseason though. What if I, what compared to where they were, what if somebody's counter argument to your argument was a very simple, one guy had a preseason top 10 team, took it out, took it clear out of the rankings. Another guy had an unranked team. He's taking it into the top five. Get out of my face, Fran McCaffrey's coach of the year. <laughs> no, I mean, you, by the way, if you voted Fran McCaffrey, I wouldn't be like, right. oh, yeah, like you're wrong. No, like it, it's a decision where I think there are two very viable candidates. Like, oh, no, I, I, you can get a reasonable vote, vote for Tom. I, like that wouldn't be crazy. Um, yeah. But but I, I guess I would just rely on Iowa was supposed to just be another team. Instead, they're like a one seed basically right now and perfect in their league. If you got to give a big 10 coach of the year award right now, I'd give it. Sure. To, and give and you know, there's the whole idea that Iowa lost to uh, Augustana in the preseason. Right. So right. maybe, I mean, maybe I am just totally wrong. Yeah. How about that? You, you, know? you say, like, you say Fran hasn't taken it. He, Fran took his team from losing to a D two school to, I totally, to they can't totally lose to anybody. Wow. Where are you at on this Norlander? 
I'm a, I'm with Fran decidedly at this point. Yeah. And I and I say that with complete admission that I declare that Indiana would not didn't have a chance at getting its defense turned around to this degree, and it totally has. Yeah. I'm continually blown away by it, but I'm still very much. Let's wait and see. I, I feel like there's a, a small shoot that might a shoe that might drop with the Hoosiers, who are going to make the tournament with no, despair. I, but uh, you you tell me over under 3.5 Indiana standing in the Big Ten regular season when we get to the end of the year, I still might take under, meaning fourth or worse. Okay, let me. No, I I would take over or like third or better because their schedule doesn't really get super crazy. I would. Take they do have to face. Yeah, they do have to face Iowa twice. They have to face Maryland once. They have to face Michigan State once. Um, and they get Purdue once. Like, you still have Wisconsin, Minnesota, Penn State, Illinois, Nebraska. Yeah. And th- that's probably 12 wins right there. Yeah. So you would think that, you know, maybe they steal one or two of those games against the stronger opposition. I would take, yeah, I would take top three. I w- if you told me Indiana top three, yes or no, finishing the Big Ten, I would say yes right now. And honestly, I don't know that Indiana, as far as like a talent level, is a top three team in the Big Ten. Right. Either. Like, it just comes down to schedule for me. Like, you could tell me that you would rather have Iowa, Michigan State, and Maryland, and I'd be like, you're not wrong. Right. But Michigan's only two games behind, and, doesn't, and it's going to get Levert back at some point here. So if it can keep going, you know. Still- what? One last thing about the top 25 and one. Um, I do not have Kentucky in it, and Kentucky fans are uh, incredibly offended by this development. They alternate between telling me my rankings do not matter uh, while also telling me how furious they are about them. Uh, my own my my own approach to life is to never get mad about stuff that I don't think matters, but like what I'm not going to tell other people how to live their lives. I would say this. There's actually a case to be made for Kentucky. Like you can, reason, you can reasonably rank Kentucky. Um, they might be – one of the top 26 teams in America. Um, if if they're ranked tomorrow, and I'm, I'm sure they will be in the AP poll and the coaches poll, I won't spend the Politex column attacking people that voted for Kentucky. I would say this, though. They have four losses outside of the top 50 at Kenpa. Four. And they only have three wins inside. They, they, they Now, again, there is no, like, hard rules about any of this stuff, and it's all subjective, but I, I can tell you this as a matter of fact. Of the 26 teams I have ranked, none of them have more losses outside of the top 50 than they do wins inside of the top 50. None of them. None of them. And Kentucky does. And so, uh, you know, Kentucky fans, like, are focusing on, we beat Louisville, we beat Duke. How could we not be ranked? Okay, but, like, there's another, like, the losses matter, too. And you you have four outside the top 50. Again, you can reasonably rank them. But if I had Kentucky in the top 25 and one, I guess this is my point, they would be the only team in the top 25 and one that has more losses outside of, Kim Palm's top 50 then wins inside of Kim Palm's top 50. They've got three top 50 wins and four sub 50 losses. So for all the Kentucky fans asking for an explanation, there is your explanation. Let's look ahead a little bit. Uh, got two good games Monday night. Uh, Duke at Miami, Kansas at Iowa State. Um, let's start with Duke at Miami. They won at NC State over the weekend. Uh, so they snapped their three-game losing streak, avoided a four-game losing streak for the first time since 2007. But what does that mean, and does it suggest that they can go down and win at Miami? Because I'm not—I don't think they can go down and win at Miami. Matt, go ahead. Oh yeah, I was actually ceding the floor to you, Sam. Uh, I, I didn't—I didn't want to open my mouth on it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, I Duke's going to be in just a super weird spot here if it doesn't win. Um, Miami is what fifteen and three. Is does Duke have three? Lo- yeah, because it dropped three in a row. So Duke has got three losses already in the league. Yeah, Duke's fifteen and five overall, four and three in the league. The losses are to Kentucky, Utah, out of conference, Clemson, Notre Dame, Syracuse, Syracuse inside the league. Right. Uh, problematic here. And and what's going to happen is I know that Ingram. Uh, I mean not Ingram. Um, Emil, Emil Jefferson, Jefferson is still not back. And when he when if and when he gets back and he's going to get back um, when that happens and if Duke is able to play strongly, you know, the fans are going to think that the committee should really evaluate Duke more on when he was there than when he was not. There gets to be a certain point where you've missed enough games that I'm sorry that you're going to be judged uh, and, and, you know, and lose seed spots accordingly. So um, even when you didn't have your star player, if he's gone for a serious amount of time, if Duke loses here, 
Do you think Duke's going to be ranked, GP? Where do you have him in your poll right now? I have Duke at 23rd. And They're going to stay ranked. Well, and here's, here's, and here's what I'll tell you. I'll, I mean, they I'll, lost I'll, at Syracuse. At lost, no, you know what? They might not be ranked. No, well, they might not be, but here's what I would tell you. Um, holding them to the same standard that I held Kentucky, right? Kentucky's got four losses outside of the top 50, three wins inside the top 50. They got more losses outside the top 50 than they do in, wins inside the top 50. Now, again, I understand that you know where these games were played matters. Who was playing in them matters. I, I, these aren't hard and fast rules, but it, it is at least one measuring device, right? Okay, so for Duke, you, you apply the same standard to them. They have two losses outside of the top 50. Utah in OT and at Clemson by five points. So Kentucky has four outside of the top 50. Duke only has two outside of the top 50. And then Duke has a VCU win. VCU's 30th at Ken Palm. A Georgetown win. Georgetown's 50th at Ken Palm. And um, I believe in uh, an Indiana win. Indiana's 20th at, at, at Ken Palm. So Duke has three wins inside the top 50 and, and two losses outside of the top 50. Whereas Kentucky has three inside wins and four losses outside. So like, again, this isn't hard and fast, but um, you know, Duke has better losses or not as many bad losses and they've got, uh, comparable wins. I mean, I, I think Kentucky's clearly got better wins, including a win over Duke. Um, but, but Kentucky's got four, again, four losses outside of the top 50, including one to Auburn and Auburn stinks. So like, um, listen, you could rank Kentucky and Duke. You could probably not rank either, but I think Duke at this moment has a better resume than Kentucky. All right, real quick here. So uh, if Miami wins, and, I, and I'll, I'll pick Miami right here on the podcast, I think Miami will win. That'll probably be their moment of arrival now that college basketball is more on everyone's radar. Because it's, you know, we got a little layup here for the Super Bowl and all that stuff. Um, so people give a little more love to Miami. If Sam wants to chime in on that game, he can. But real quick from me on the, another, the other game, Kansas-Iowa State. Iowa State, if it wins here... I think I don't know who's going to win. I'm really torn on this. But if it does beat Kansas, what you'll have is Kansas's Big 12 streak really coming into jeopardy because of the fact that Oklahoma. First of all, there's a logjam atop the league right, right now. Right now, there's four four schools that are five and two. five and two: Oklahoma, West Virginia, Kansas, and Baylor. Mm-hmm. But Oklahoma is going to be in the driver's seat because Oklahoma is tied with everyone else. And it's already gotten its road game against Kansas out of the way, its road game against Iowa State out of the way, and its road game against Baylor out of the way. Yeah. It did go one and two in, the, in those games, but to yep. ha- it's the only school that has its three toughest road games in the league. And if you want to throw West Virginia in there, I understand. But you get what I'm saying. Like, if Kansas does lose, Oklahoma will have a, a, a real, real good shot at, uh, at taking the league crown. Based on what, like, that I think Oklahoma is like, I don't know if they're the best team in the country. I, I think North Carolina might be the best team in the country. Like if you told me to take a hundred thousand dollars and bet it on somebody to win the tournament, I, I might put it on Carolina. But like, I, I, as I've talked about already, I think Oklahoma has the best resume. And given that combined with the schedule, like exactly what you mentioned, Orlando, they've already got their road games at, at Kansas and Iowa state behind them. I would bet like if, if, if you told me I had to take a hundred thousand dollars and pick a winner big 12 at this point, as, as weird as this sounds, I would I would put my money on Oklahoma to win the Big 12 this year. Sam? I mean, would you take the – I would guess that Kansas and Oklahoma probably split it at this point. I know also, that – Yeah. Yeah. I, like that, that could that be would, the most likely outcome is a tie. Yeah. Well, think about this. Okay, so Kansas is going to be an underdog tomorrow night at Hilton, okay? Sure. So let's say they lose that. that then they got three losses. They, the Oklahoma State loss is killing Kansas. That's right that's you can't lose those. Like there's a couple of you got to basically to win the Big Twelve. I think this is what we're going to find out. You got to win your home games, and you cannot lose on the road to Oklahoma State or TCU. Yep, that's the way you do it. And and Kansas already has one of those losses. And so here, here's my point: Kansas underdog tomorrow night. If they lose at Hilton, which is a, if by definition you're an underdog, you're, you're kind of supposed to. That's three league losses, and then they still got to go to Oklahoma. So if they can't win at Oklahoma then that's four. I mean, if they don't win at Hilton, they probably need to win at Oklahoma or they're in trouble. It's fascinating. Love yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Like if they don't win at Hilton, they're probably going to have to win at Oklahoma. I bet you this. I bet you Kansas cannot win the Big 12 without winning at least at Hilton or at, o- or I at Oklahoma. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. Right. So like, can you, like, that's, a, but, hell, that's a hell of a hard thing to do though. <laughs> it's a hell of a hard thing to do. Uh, I don't think they're going to win tomorrow night. I think Iowa State's going to going to take it, but we'll see Kansas how Iowa State spends. And what a but, and what a nice story that's turned into. Like um, I wrote about this last week. Like after the Texas game, Steve Prohm actually took 
for people who didn't read the column, um, he took Facebook and Twitter off of his phone so that he wouldn't see it anymore because like he acknowledged it was getting to him and like, you know, um, he's, you know, he it's a double edged sword. Like the, the situation he walked into on one hand, Hey, here's a, here's a million dollar a year raise and you get a top 10 team. Like, well, my God, that's unbelievable. But you also get the expectations of your top 10 team. Whereas, you know, Bobby Hurley takes a new job. Ben Howland takes a new job. Um, you know, you're not expected to come. Avery Johnson takes a new job. You're not expected to cut. Like you just sort of, you get a few years just to get comfortable. People don't expect anything from you from day one, uh, except for maybe you know, on the recruiting trail. Well, Steve gets that Iowa State job and you're, you better win now or else. And it got ugly. And, um, you know, he, he said, listen, I care so much about this place. And it was like the, the quotes were pretty refreshing, candid. Uh, he, he said, I, I care. And I don't want to feel like I'm letting people down. I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want people to think I'm not worthy of this job. And and so he had to like detach from social media. Like we've all been there, uh, probably maybe not to that extreme, but like where you just feel like I need to not look at this stuff right now. Sam's because... almost there with Iowa, Iowa <laughs> right. fans right now. Right. I mean, so like like, yeah, like yeah. it really can't. I heard Howard Stern talk about this one time. He said he he doesn't spend much time on Twitter because like and like Howard Stern's immensely popular. He is um, incredibly successful, like maybe the most successful, probably the most successful radio host in the history of radio. And like he was like, and I pop on Twitter and people just like are just like saying such mean things about me. And it's like it just messes with your mood. And so like if even somebody who's undeniably successful and and well liked, um, you know, is still getting blasted by strangers on Twitter to the point where he's like, man, this is kind of weird. Like I, this is messing with my mind and mood. Um, imagine what it's like when you like take a top 10 team and, and, and lose, you know, three or four games to Oklahoma, Baylor, Texas. So Steve was really going through it. And then he bounces back, uh, wins at Kansas state beats Oklahoma, then goes wins at TCU. And now if he can get this one tomorrow night against Kansas, like it's, he's completely flipped the script. And I don't get involved in like rooting for teams too much unless I happen to have money on them or something. But like I do root for like stories and I do root for like good things to happen to for good people type of stuff. And, you know, I I just sort of try to put myself in other people's shoes sometimes and like how I'd be feeling if I were Steve Prohm and and uh, underachieving by definition at Iowa State following the, you know, Fred Hoiberg and still living in that unbelievably huge shadow. So like I was like, um, you know, I don't want to tell you I was rooting for him to beat Oklahoma, but like I, I, I like the byproduct of that. Like I like that he yeah, – I had a coach text me Monday night. Was that last Monday night? How about this? A coach completely – like I don't even know if he knows Steve, right? And he texted me after that game was – he actually, he texted me after I wrote my column the subsequent the next day. And he said, um, he said, hey, I just read the column. He said, I, I'm really happy for Steve. He said, did you notice at the end of that game – he said, even after they're winning and like people storming the court, he's like, he didn't even look happy. He just looked relieved. Like, thank God I did not lose this game. And like, that's a hell of a way to live, you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I mean, you kind of covered it all GP there. I, gotta, <laughs> I turned back into old Gary on the podcast. Where no, I talk, it's fine. Where I it's, talk no, that was, that was hey, you point. know what? You're allowed to because it's your damn birthday. It is my birthday. Happy birthday acknowledgement. It, it is my birthday. How's it feel now that uh, – you're in your fifth decade. Let the record show I'm 39 years old. I don't know why Goodman thinks that's funny. <laughs> like, and I just, I have to choose. Uh, so here's what happened. Like, Goodman thinks it's funny to pretend everybody's older than they are for some Legitimately reason. Legitimately texted probably 25 people to, to tell yep. you that. Yeah. Oh, I know. Like, Frank Martin is tweeting about me being 51 years old. Like, <laughs> so ridiculous. It, it is really, really ridiculous, you know? like Maybe I'm, you need to take Twitter off your phone. Well, like, okay, so you have to decide very early on. Are you going to... Um, like play along and like and by play along I mean say I'm not 51 like to everybody who says it like then it's like then you're arguing people like you're Sam <laughs> or yeah don't do that or, do not do that or you just ignore it at which point like like here's the problem I I do look older than 39 you know I have gray hair and a bald spot I've, I've lived a hard life <laughs> you know um so I do look older than 39 so I don't know if I look 51 but I don't know that that's the most unbelievable thing in the world. And yet I don't want people thinking I'm 51 years old. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm 39 years old. I'm 39 years old. I'm still in my 30s for another year. But it's, uh, yes, it's my birthday. I celebrated by doing sideline duty for East Carolina Memphis. And East Carolina, 
Yo, Whoa. the Pirates. The Pirates, man. The Pirates beat Memphis. The Pirates came into FedEx form and got work done. Never mind that they were winless in the conference and winless on the road. And without their second leading scorer, they, they came in and won at FedEx form. Oh, man, it's, that's, that's, that's a killer. That's a killer. That's, that's pa- Passner's making it through the week, right? Yeah, they, like this isn't the type of he ain't the type of guy that would get fired mid year. That, like, that's just not okay. the, that's not uh, the way this would go it's on. It's gonna cost millions upon millions to get like, him like out. the issue. And yeah, I, mean, it, I don't like it when people get fired. So good. He he is. See, here, here, here's that. the problem. Like Memphis fans are weird when it comes to Josh in this way. Um, undeniably, he's not getting the job done now. Like nobody could intelligently or unintelligently argue otherwise. Like the recruiting has slipped. Last year was bad. This year, I mean, they just lost to East Carolina at home. Like what are we Pirates? Talking? Yeah, the, to the Pirates. What are we talking about, right? So like and nobody could argue he's doing a good job now or that he's getting the job done now. Um, but like Memphis fans tend to think he never got the job done. Like he's always been bad. And I, I would submit like his first five years, he went to four NCAA tournaments in his first five years as a head coach. Like, um, was consistently ranked in the top 25. Like, I, I don't, you know, I, I grew up in the area. When I was a kid, if Memphis was ranked in the top 25, that was like a big deal. It was like, whoa, the Tigers are ranked 23rd. Can you believe it? And, and like, John Calipari skewed all that. So, like, now it was, it was a big deal if you're not in the top 25. Like, that means you're terrible. But, like, I don't know. I think the Memphis coach going to four tournaments in five years is, like, pretty, you know, pretty good, really good for the Memphis coach. So, the, you know, the, where I get sideways with Memphis fans sometimes is, like, don't tell me he's been a disaster from the beginning. Uh, his first five years were good by normal Memphis standards. Um, but the, but now it's it's really bad. And, you know, it's hard to envision it getting better, if only because the fans don't believe anymore. Like, there might have been 5,000 people at that game today. Oh, and, boy. I mean, like, you know, this is a place that used to sell 17,000 season tickets. They have 18,000 for anybody. Like, you could play East Carolina on a Sunday afternoon, and there'd be 18,000 people there. And, you know, today there was maybe – there's been games this year where there's only 3,000 people there. Um, and so like, and, and the fans just fundamentally don't believe, you know, you, when you get to that point as a politician where the, your, 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 your constituents don't believe in you anymore. Like it's hard to lead, uh, same way in coaching, particularly college coaching. Um, when, when your fans don't believe you're the guy for the job anymore, it's hard to convince them otherwise. And so, and then, and beyond that, you know, if you're not good this year and you're losing Ricky Tarrant and you're losing Shaq Goodwin and you're losing Trayshawn Burrell, um, you're probably losing three of your best four or five players, and they've signed one top 100 kid to come in, a point guard out of Chicago. So, like, how are they going to be better next year, right? The problem, of course, is they've got a, he's got a $10 million buyout, like $10 million. That's the buyout. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Check that agent. I mean, what the heck is that? $10 million. I mean, Memphis was silly. You know, it, it happened Ridiculous. when – I mean, it's just a daunt. Like, listen, I'm happy for Josh. Get, hey, get, get paper, man. But, like, I mean, the idea that – the athletic director at Memphis would sign off on a $2.65 million contract. That that's a, that's an automatic rollover. Basically the buyout was going to be $10 million forever. Like, you know, that's not, that's not quite true, but like it is right now, $10 million buyout. Like, what do you, like, why would you sign that? Like, why? You know, like, and it was because Josh got offered the USC job and they felt like they needed to secure their hot and young coach. But like, you know, what a, a, a more savvy athletic director would have probably done would have said, you know what, if you want to leave your top 10 recruiting class um, to go coach at USC, knock yourself out, you know, like dare him to take the job. You know, that's what, that's what UCLA did for years. You know, Ben Hallen never made like what he probably should have made at UCLA. And you want to know why? You know, what UCLA now they're paying offered in a way that they never paid Ben. But you know what UCLA's administration did, which sucked for Ben, but like I sort of get it from their perspective. Here's what they'd say. Um, we realize that Nebraska is offering you more money than, than we're paying you to coach at UCLA. If you would like to leave UCLA to go coach Nebraska, you should do that. And it's like, well, I'm not leaving UCLA to go coach in Nebraska, or I'm not leaving Westwood to go live in Nebraska. Like, like so like, sure. and, and you can sort of like, that, that's, I don't understand and now we're getting way off topic, but I, I do find this it's interesting. It's your birthday. I, yeah, I, I do, you, you get this moment. I do find this interesting. Why do athletic directors feel compelled to sign coaches to these long-term contracts? Why do you have to do it? You know what, you know what they say for recruiting, right? Well, if you can't show a kid you're going to be there at least for the next four years, then you know, you're not going to be able to tell him you're going to be his coach. Well, you can't tell him that anyway. Like Kids should be, or at least their parents or AAU coaches, should be savvy enough to understand, like, 
just because somebody has a five-year contract doesn't mean they're going to coach there for five years. Um, so like once you realize the five-year contract doesn't actually guarantee anything, it just guarantees you're going to get paid. It doesn't guarantee you're going to be the coach. Why do athletic directors sign these coaches to five-year contracts, six-year contracts, seven-year contracts? Why would you do that? Well, I, I would say that in a lot of cases, you're not talking about a situation like UCLA. Uh, you're talking about a situation like Memphis. Well, like I'm talking about realistically, any, it's relatively easy to poach someone. Well, here's yeah, here's what I would say. Well, well, okay, but how's it, any any time a Memphis coach wants to leave Memphis to go somewhere else, he can do it. Like there's all. Here's what I would argue: the long term contract never really benefits the school. It it, it all it like it benefits the coach because it gives him financial security, but it will never it will never keep a coach from leaving you. It, but what it what it can do is keep you from getting rid of the coach if he's bad, like it 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 because you go because the coach like the buyout's always going to be two hundred fifty you know hundred thousand. Well, here's here's what my argument would be to you uh -huh. if Wichita State didn't make such a large commitment to Greg Marshall this year, right? Would he be at Wichita State still? Well, like no, I, they absolutely they the, like they came in hot and heavy and hard, super hard last yeah. minute, and yeah. And barely got him. So, like, if you think that Greg Marshall is your guy, that's what you have to do. You have to back up the truck to make sure that you keep but, your guy. Okay. In Memphis, but, the but, scenario. But, okay. Okay. Can we argue? More to GP's point here. Right. I'm telling you, if Wichita State makes the Final Four this year, right? And someone comes in, he's going to be gone. How about this? Someone's going to. Someone this? is going to. If, if, like, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but right. I'm saying. And then it was it worth it for Wichita State? Because if if the Shockers go on another run and they've got you know they're sneakily sure it was because they don't have to pay a buyout. Well, here's Missouri no, Valley. Here, no, here's what I'm telling you. All right, they 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 stepped up and they committed more than three million dollars a year to Greg, long term contract, whatever. All right, and so what does that do? Here's what here's it keeps Greg from taking the Alabama job. If the Indiana job opens for whatever reason and they want Greg Marshall, guess where guess where Greg Marshall's coaching next year? Sure, but. My point is, though, that that long-term deal didn't necessarily hinder Wichita in that scenario. Well, okay. It you, kept uh, their guy. Uh, no, no, no. But here's – listen, it's never going to bother you or hurt you as long as your guy's awesome consistently. I'm talking about in this in this uh, hypothetical – In the passenger scenario, it doesn't really work. Well, well like my, my argument is it can only – it can't really help the school because if the coach wants to leave because he's so awesome and gets another opportunity, he's going to leave. But but the alternative to him being awesome is him being crappy, and if he's crappy, you are stuck with him. That's that. So like with Greg Marshall, um, okay, as long as Greg Marshall continues to be awesome, then the contract will never hurt Wichita State. But the contract also will not keep Greg Marshall from leaving for an Indiana job. And if Greg Marshall, for whatever reason, and I don't think this would happen, but like it just went straight into the gutter, Wichita State stuck with a coach who just ran its program straight into the gutter. It does, sure. Like, but, it's, it, but it's like, for instance, it's like a big contract in baseball. Like you see that, you know, Ryan Howard gets this five-year, $125 million extension when he still has two years left on his contract, which was, everyone knew when they signed it was going to go south, and it ends up going south. You can't necessarily pinpoint the worst-case scenario uh, and make it stand for the whole in, in that way. Like the Miguel Cabrera contract, you know that that's going to go south in the last three years of it for the Tigers. But if – the Tigers can ring out enough value in the first, I don't know, like six years uh, of that deal. It's the same. Like it, it I works. don't think it's like the same it works thing, for them. No, because I don't think, I think this is apples and oranges because again, if Miguel Cabrera is awesome, like he can't this leave. contracts are just flat out insane, by the way. Yeah, so, I know. But like, but, like totally my, but my point, like with Cabrera, okay. He can't so, flat out leave. No, he can't leave you. Whereas if Greg Marshall's awesome, he can leave you. That's my point with college basketball coaches. You sign them to long-term deals because you think it locks them up, but it doesn't really lock them up. It only locks you to them if they're crappy. It doesn't lock them to you under any circumstances. So it's more, okay. So again, I'm going to actually give the baseball scenario because I can actually think of another example. So it's like giving an opt-out. So like the Mets just gave Johan Cespedes yes. an opt-out, yes. right? Yes, So it's like that where is if they can ring enough value out of, him in that first year, it's fully worth it. Like, say you give him 30 million in the first year and then have like 22 and a half million for each of the next two years, and he gets hurt and he blows his ACL this year uh, in September or something like that after he gives you seven wins worth of value. I mean, it, it, it kind of ends up being fine for the organization, I guess I would say, because you get that value up front as opposed to getting it later. 
but here, <laughs> we are so far off topic. We are so far <laughs> off right now. Yeah, so far off. The X Files, please, please just turn off the podcast at this point if you guys are bored by this conversation. No, I'm actually. It's a. It's a very but, fascinating no, with, with, conversation. With the cesspitous thing is, first off, it is exactly why the Mets didn't want to go five uh, years with him, like because they think it's going to tell off. They, but they could only get it. The, the they could only get it done with three if they were willing to let him opt out. In other words, sure. you can opt out after one if you want to. We just want you for – they they needed that bat in the lineup for this coming up season, and then if he wants to opt out and go try to get another, a five-year deal, they're fine with it. But, like, still, again, I, I, let me wrap this back around and then we'll move on. Um, in, in college coaching – and I'm strictly talking about college coaching. If mm-hmm. you sign a man – forget Greg Marshall, forget Josh Pastner. Let's just – in general, if you were at a school – and you sign a man to a five-year deal worth, let's just say, $15 million. Sure. There is a scenario under which he's awesome and like it doesn't hurt you. There is no scenario where it doesn't where it, where it helps you. I don't know how it helps you because if that guy is awesome and so awesome that a better job comes after him, your contract will not prevent him from leaving. If he wants to go, he'll go. Steve offered left after agreeing to a brand new contact, new contract ten, in New Mexico. Was it a ten-year deal, something? It was yeah, crazy. yeah, but yeah. That, that, so yeah, here's but the sometimes you have to offer the money to keep your guy. But no, the, uh, you, ha- I agree, offer the money. You don't have to offer the years. That's what I'm saying. Because here, bottom line in college coaching, guys keep the jobs they have until they get a job they uh, job offer they view as better, and then they take that job. And their contract never prevents them from doing it. Do you even know what kind of contract? I mean, and I'm not trying to like put you on the spot. It's a rhetorical question. Like nobody knows. What, like nobody knows what kind of contract John Calipari had at Memphis. He just signed a brand new five year contract the year before, like the, before the season started. It doesn't matter. Kentucky wants you. You go. So what? My point is this: the long term contract. It will it will lock up your coach for the time being. If he wins and continues to win at the at the level he's winning at right now, then you're fine. It does it, but but it won't prevent him from leaving. If somebody else wants him and he wants to go, he can go. That contract will not lock him in. So the only, so it it will not tie him to you. But what it does do is tie you to him in a way where if it goes the wrong way, you are really stuck in a bad spot. It happened to Georgia Tech with Paul Hewitt. It's happened to Memphis now with um with Josh Pastner. It happened to Oklahoma State right now with Travis Ford. Like think about all the uh Georgia Tech with Brian Gregory. Uh, Dave Rice, that's one of the reasons he kept his job after last season was the contract. Um, the, these long-term contracts tie school. They, I, I, I'll bottom line it like this. The long-term contracts in college coaching more often, way more often, put the schools in terrible situations than they do put the schools in great situations. That's all. Sure. I would say long-term there's significant downside and maybe there should be uh, fewer years attached to college coaches contracts, but I don't think it's like a significant issue either. If you're trying to keep a coach that you believe is truly the guy for your program, it's you a, know what I mean? Well, it's a significant problem right now at Oklahoma state and Memphis. And you could argue, yeah, but, yeah, but you know, like there are significant, pro- there are going to be downsides to contracts and there are going to be positive things to contracts. You okay. know what I mean? Like, like Tony Bennett right now at Virginia is an example of, of what? Think, Oh, pretty what? sure he has a very long-term contract. Okay, and guess it? what? If he wants to leave, he'll leave. The contract will not tie him to Virginia. If we, if he, the Wisconsin job comes sure, to him. Sure, it's not going to tie him to Virginia. So then what's the point of the long-term contract from the school's perspective? To what keep is, him from yeah, going But it doesn't keep him. It doesn't no, but keep it's him. It's an immediate benefit, though. It's not like, like say, a school two years ago offered Tony Bennett somewhere, like That's the amazing. job somewhere else. It's an immediate benefit to keep your guy from staying. Yeah, I agree with you that collegiate co- collegiate contracts should be a little bit shorter. But on the whole, the immediate benefit is actually really strong because you keep the guy in place. What is that it? I don't you understand. think is the guy for your program? You only like, keep him in place because he doesn't get a better deal somewhere else. You don't keep him in place because of the contract. If he, he, any coach in America can sign a five year deal tomorrow and leave. It's the same as any other free agency situation, though. But that's my thing. Why do we have to do five years? If I were an athletic director, that's what I would I would be asking myself. Because the market makes it so. I you know what that. I mean? Like, it's a market economic situation more than it is. I mean, you could collude with all of the other athletic directors and say, like, oh, no, hey, no, we should no. not. We should not offer these five year deals. But uh, that's the way the market is now. They're no. offering these five year deals and to outdo the other schools. You have to offer years. No, I get that completely. And I guess my larger point and really my my only point was how did that become the market? Like, how did coaches trick 
and their agents trick athletic departments into thinking that has to be the market. It, it, they, they trick them by saying we have to have the, the security for recruiting. Otherwise, we can't recruit. And, and by the way. And I submit that that's not a real issue. My one quick thing here is like, and it's bad in college basketball, but in college football, in the offensive and defensive coordinator market, like it's getting insane, like utterly and completely ridiculous considering the inventory of games, uh, the sizes of rosters and just like guys in the SEC clearing a million dollars a year that aren't even head coaches. No, it's wild. Anyway, that was, I I don't know if that was an interesting conversation, but it is. No, it, it was, it was really good and I can't wait for like the Sunday night at the final four, when we stoke this conversation again at a bar and you guys are going until like three in the morning. That's I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to ask uh, like next few times I bump into associate ADs or athletes, I'm going to like, I, I'll pick their brains about it. Like t- explain to me why you think, I know the answer. It seems exactly right. It, the mar- This is what the market dictates, right? It's why you, it's why people thought the Mets were going to have to go five years for Cespedes because it, it appeared that that would be what the market would dictate, although it, it didn't. But, like, it's very much rooted in, well, that's we have to go five years because everybody else goes five years. I mean, that is, Sam's exactly right there. I guess my point is, like, let's back up and go, okay, why, why – how did we get to this market? And and how do we benefit as a, as an athletic department from having coaches to five years? I know we have to do it because everybody else is doing it, but why did why do we as a uh, – you know, in all of us, all of us in, in, in our, you know – why do we have to, as athletic departments, do five years? Like, how do we get tricked into this? And like I said, it's all based on I need I need a four or five year contract. To me. What is happening? <laughs> are you Sam. killing your dog? Are you taking my dog, Sam? Here, like, oh, Sam, angry. are you taking? But like my, are four you minutes taking, ago, his Sam, dog are, was going. You, I think Sam's taking his frustration out of, uh, of, of me on his dog. Do not <laughs> hate. Don't you hurt? Don't, so angry. Don't you hurt little Penny because you're mad at me. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know what happened. Like, I have no idea what's going out there. I like podcast in like the corner of my room and I can't see what she is doing by like the door of my apartment right now. So she might be going crazy at like the smallest fly, like on the mirror, or she might be like barking at herself in the mirror. I don't even. Amazing. Podcast. Anyway, I just remembered that we got into this conversation somehow just by somebody wishing me happy birthday right <laughs> which is ridiculous all right let's go sam's gotta go take care of his dog i gotta go to bed i think and norlander's probably gotta uh you know feed a baby a bottle or something. gotta watch some x-files man are you kidding me right you know now? what i never watched x-files i can't get i love david Duchovny. i love the um californication uh, i love californication i love rated disposable tv show absolutely like just like like a bet like if you like entourage what you really should have liked is californication I, you know what i would agree with that because i was not an entourage fan right but uh x-files yeah no it was, it was kind of you know child of the 90s absolutely love it and uh i'm hey, actually watching it right now as well <laughs> okay sam you watch x-files and take care of your dog norland you watch x-files and i'm just gonna go. all right i'll chat you later in the week i'll guys. see you guys later right. bye bye